The Complete Norse Mythology, adapted by Kevin Crossley Holland, music by Mats Vent, read by Tom Harris. Part 5 The Lay of Vafthrudnir Such fever in my blood, cried Odin. I so long to range far and wide. Allfather prowled up and down Valeskjalf as though he were caged. What do you think, Frigg? I've a mind to visit Vafthrudnir in his high hall. I would rather the father of warriors stayed in Asgard, home of the gods, said Frigg. So far as I know, Vafthrudnir has no equal amongst the giants. I've roamed far, and I've learned much, and all that the gods know, I know, replied Odin. I want to match my wits against the Riddle Master, the wise giant Vafthrudnir. Go safely, then, said Frigg. Return safely, and may the way you're taking be safe, father of men. Your mind must be needle-sharp when you pit yourself against that giant. Then Odin left Asgard to plumb the wisdom of the giant. He ferried himself across the wild and the wide and the whispering rivers and made his way over the trembling rainbow. He pulled down his wide-brimmed hat so that no one could see that he lacked one eye, smiled grimly, and walked into Jotunheim. The further Odin went, the colder it grew. He strode over a ribbed and silent plain, bright with snow, and vast plumes of steam that issued from whistling fissures. And at the mouth of a valley surrounded on three sides by the purple mountains, Odin found the hall of Eam's father, Vafthrudnir. The terrible one entered it. Greetings, Vafthrudnir, Odin called out. I've heard so much about you that I wanted to meet you. Is it true that you're wise? Can it possibly be true that there's nothing you do not know? Who are you? demanded Vafthrudnir. What man thinks he can slight me in my own high hall? You'll not leave this place alive unless you're wiser than I am. My name is Gangrad, said Odin, a bringer of fortune, a walking charm. It has been a hard journey to your hall, and I'm thirsty. I must say I had hoped for a warmer welcome after such a hall. What are you standing there for, said the giant. There's no need to hold the floor. Choose a seat, make yourself at home. Then we'll soon find out who knows more, the guest or his time-proven host. A poor man does best to speak to the point or say nothing at all in a rich man's hall, Gangrod said. Tough-minded men brook little bragging. All right, Gangrod, said Vafthrudnir. Answer from the floor if you can answer at all. What's the name of the stallion that every morning draws day across the world? That is Skinfaxi. He is the stallion who draws shining day to gladden the eyes of men. To heroes he seems the very best of horses, and his mane is fiery. All right, Gangrad, Vafthrudnir said. Answer from the floor if you can answer at all. What's the name of the stallion that over and over again brings night from the east for the noble gods? 
Rib Foxy is the name of the stallion that over and over again brings night for the noble gods. Foam falls from his bit at dawn, and that's the source of the dew in the dales. All right, Gangrad, said Vafthrudnir. Answer from the floor if you can answer at all. What's the name of the river that divides the world of the gods from the world of the giants? Eving is the river that divides the world of the gods from the world of the giants. In time past it has never frozen. In time to come it will flow freely. All right, Gangrad, said Vafthrudnir. Answer from the floor if you can answer at all. What's the name of the plain where Surt and the fine gods will meet and fight? Vigrid is the plain where Surt and the fine gods will meet and fight. It's a hundred miles long and a hundred miles wide. Vafthrudnir stared at his guest. You know much, he said. Sit here at my bench and we will talk further. Here and now my guest in this hall will wager our heads, your life or my life on the outcome of this contest. Then Odin sat down and began to pose his questions. First tell me then, Vafthrudnir, if in your wisdom you know the answer. At the beginning of time, wise giant, where did the earth and the sky come from? The earth was shaped from Ymir's flesh, and the mountains were built from his bones. The sky was made from that frost giant's skull and the salt seas were streams of his blood. Second, tell me then, Vafthrudnir, if in your wisdom you know the answer. Where did the moon and the burning sun come from, those travelers over the world of men? Mundulfari fathered the moon and the burning sun. Each day they run along the arc of the heavens to tell the time for men. Third, tell me then, Vafthrudnir, if you're so wise and know the answer, where does day come from? And from where does night come with its waning moon, travelers over the world of men? Delling is day's father, and Nor the father of night. New moon and old moon were shaped by the gods to tell the time for men. Fourth, tell me then, Vafthrudnir, if you're so wise and know the answer. Where did winter and warm summer first come from for the fine gods? Vinsval, the wind cold, was winter's father, and gentle Svosud fathered summer. Fifth, tell me then, Vafthrudnir, if you're so wise and to know the answer. Who was the first of the giants, and what are the names of the firstborn? Bergomir was born countless winters before the making of the earth. That mighty giant was Thrudgelmir's son, and Orgelmir's grandson. Sixth, tell me then, Vafthrudnir, if you're so wise and know the answer. Where, wise giant, did Orgelmir and his issue come from so long ago? Venom dropped from the stormy waves of Elivagar. It clotted and rose until it was a giant. That is how the race of giants began, and that's why we're all so fierce. Seventh, tell me then, Vafthrudnir, if you're so wise and know the answer. How did the grim giant conceive children, since he never slept with a giantess? It's said that a boy and a girl grew in the frost giant's armpits, and with one leg and the other leg that frost giant begat and bore a son with six heads. Eighth, 
Tell me then, Vafthrudnir, if you're so wise and know the answer. What is your first memory? There can be nothing you do not know. Bergomir was born untold winters before the making of the earth. My first memory is of that wise giant in a boat's rocking cradle. Ninth, tell me then, Vafthrudnir, if you're so wise and know the answer. From where does the wind come that travels over the waves, but yet is never seen? The eagle, Hrasveld, the corpse-eater, is said to sit at the end of the world. When he flaps his wings, wind moves over the world of men. Tenth, tell me now if you know everything about the fates of the gods. How can Yord be one of their number? For he presides over many temples and wayside shrines, although he was not begotten by God. The Vanir created him in Vanaheim. At the end of the world, he'll return to his own people. Eleventh, tell me then if you know everything about the fates of the gods. Who are the men in Odin's hall who go out to fight each day? All the dead heroes in Odin's hall go out to fight each day. They fell each other, and then soon return healed from the fight to sit at the feast. Twelfth. Tell me now how you know about all the fates of the gods. You are indeed able to read the runes of the gods and the runes of the giants. I am indeed able to read the runes of the gods and the runes of the giants, because I know and have visited the nine worlds, and Niflheim below, the place where dead men dwell. Then Odin said, I've roamed far, and I've learned much, and all the gods know I know. What will survive when at the end the terrible winter afflicts men? Lif and Lifthrasir will hide themselves in Hodmimir's wood. The dew each dawn will be their food. That will be their meat then. I've roamed far and I've learned much and all that the gods know I know. From where will the sun come back to the smooth sky after Fenrir has torn her apart? Alfrothal, the elf beam, will bear a fair daughter before Fenrir tears her apart. This maid will walk in her mother's ways after the gods have been destroyed. I've roamed far, and I've learned much, and all that the gods know I know. Who are the wise maidens who will wing over the sea? Three times three maidens will fly over Mogthrasser's hill, and though they have giant's blood, they will guard the children of men. I've roamed far, and I've learned much, and all that the gods know I know. Who will rule over the world of the gods when Surt's fire dies out? Vidar and Vali will live in the home of the gods when Surt's fire has abated. Modi the wrathful and Magni the mighty will own the hammer Mjolnir after Vingnir the hurler has fallen in the fight. I've roamed far, and I've learned much, and all that the gods know, I know. What will cause Odin's death when the gods fight at Ragnarok? The wolf will swallow the father of men. Vidar will avenge him. He will tear apart those terrible jaws and Fenrir will be slain. I've roamed far, and I've learned much, and all that the gods know, I know. What did Odin himself whisper in the ear of his son Baldr before he burned on the pyre? Vafthrudnir looked long at his guest and recognized him. He said in a low voice, 
No one can tell what long ago you whispered in the ear of your son. Before I told of the first giants and the doom of the gods, I was already fated. The giant spoke his final words in his life. I've pitted myself against Odin. You will always be wiser and wisest. Thor's Journey to Utgard Thor said summer was the open season, and he announced his plan of making a journey east into Utgard and flexing himself against the giants. However few they are, he said, they are too many. An Utgard, said Loki. You'll need sharp wits. Sharp wits, repeated Thor seriously. And yours are as blunt as your hammer, said Loki, winking at Thor. Why not take me? Thor ignored the insult and accepted the offer. Evil creature, good companion, he said. Loki's eyes gleamed, now brown, now green, now indigo. His scarred lips parted a little and twisted into a wolvish smile. Tomorrow, then, said Thor. Very early in the morning, before the sky turned blue and before a cock crowed, Thor had his goats brought in from Thrudvang and harnessed to his chariot. Thor and Loki took their seats, and Thor grasped the reins of twined silver. The chariot rattled across the plains of Asgard, still soaked in dew, and Thor looked lovingly at the halls of the dreaming gods and goddesses. Towering hulks, all of them silent and dreamlike in the ashen light. They passed through the great gate and headed for Midgard, the home of men. All day the charioteer and the trickster rode and talked at ease with each other and the world. And early in the evening they came to a lonely farm, the only building for miles around. It was low-slung and almost as green as the fields surrounding it. The turfed roof seemed to grow out of the ground. A very poor place, said Loki. What they cannot provide I will, said Thor. He pulled up his goats and climbed out of the chariot. The farmer and his wife and their children, Thialfi and Roskva, stepped out of their farmhouse and then started to tremble when they recognized their visitors. What we want, said Loki, is food and shelter for the night. We will gladly give you shelter, said the farmer. And we can offer you the little food we have, said the wife. Vegetables, pottage, but there's no meat. Not even a chicken, said Loki, looking around him. The farmer slowly shook his head. We'll use my goats then, said Thor. Without ado, he slaughtered both animals and skinned them, and he cut them into joints and jammed them into the wife's large cauldron. The farmer and his wife, their long-legged son and fair daughter, felt almost sick with hunger at the thought of such a feast. They kept looking at the meat to see whether it was cooked. Thor spread the skins of his two goats some way from the fire. As you eat, he said, throw the bones onto the skins. They all sat down together under the stars. Mind what I said, Thor enjoined them. Be careful with the bones and throw them all onto the skins. Then they all began to eat. The farmer's son, Thialfi, had gone hungry for so long that he could not bear the thought of wasting good marrow. While Thor was talking to his father, he grasped one thigh bone and quickly split with his knife and sucked the rich juice from it. Then he tossed it onto the heap of bones covering the skins. After they had eaten, Thor and Loki and the farmer's family were ready to sleep, and they all slept soundly after such a fine meal. Thor was the first up. Just before daybreak, he rose and dressed and went out of the farmhouse. Then he took his hammer, Mjolnir, 
raised it over the goatskins and hallowed them. At once the goats stood up, fully fleshed and bleeding, but as they began to move about, Thor noticed that one goat had a lame hind leg. He hurried back into the farmhouse. Hoo! he shouted, and the walls of the farm trembled so much that they nearly collapsed. The farmer and his wife were shocked out of their sleep and sat straight up in their bed. Who disobeyed me? roared Thor. I can see a thigh bone has been broken. Thor's eyebrows beetled, and the farmer and his wife and Thialfi and Roskva cowered. His eyes burned like orange flames, and the family thought their days in Midgard had come to an end. Then when the thunderer grasped his hammer so that his knuckles turned white, the farmer's wife and Roskva screamed in terror. Mercy! pleaded Thialfi, screwing up his eyes. Mercy! Mercy! And the farmer begged. My land, my farm, everything I own, take them. Take everything I own and spare our lives. If Thor was sometimes furiously angry, he was never angry for long. When he saw how the whole poor family were panic-stricken, the blood stopped racing around his body. I'll take Thialfi and Roskva to be my servants, he said roughly, and that's an end to the matter. Now Thor and Loki were ready to resume their journey. Thor gave the goats and the chariot into the farmer's care. He said he would collect them on his way back, and told Thialfi and Roskva to come with him to Utgard. For a long time they walked across the gently falling land, until at last they came to the girdle of water dividing the world of men from Jotunheim. They stared at the fretful gray water in the mountains beyond, squat tubs and barrels of unfriendly land suppressed by the leaden sky. They can wait until the morning, said Thor. Then they busied themselves with putting most of the contents of the knapsacks into their stomachs, and filled with the remains of the previous night's meal and helping of porridge as well, they slept in the sand behind the rocking ocean. Thor and Loki, Thialfi, and Roskva did not have to walk far along the strand next morning before they found an old boat, beached and disused. They took it over and hauled it down to the water. The boat reared and kicked forward every time Thor pulled the oars, and by midday they reached the shore of Utgard, a broad strip of land that lay between the water and the mountains. The four travelers beached their boat, and as there was no sign of life along the coast, they headed inland. After a while, they came to a forest that stretched so far in both directions that there seemed to be no way around it. So they made their way into it and began to pick their way through it. All afternoon, they walked through the shadows, white-headed with hunger and the sweet-smelling pine. The ground was springy underfoot. By the time that the light began to fade late in the evening, they had still seen no sign of life and knew that they would have to go without much food that day, for their own stocks were running low. We must at least find somewhere to stay for the night, said Loki. I wouldn't care to end up as carrion. Is Fenrir's father so afraid of wolves, said Thor, and smiled to himself. Restless and fleet of foot, Thialfi ran ahead again and again, scouting out the forest for Thor and Loki and his sister. Now he came back with the news that he had found a glade not far ahead, with a curious kind of hall standing in the middle of it. When they reached the glade, Thor and Loki walked round the hall, it puzzled them, too. Although there seemed to be no door, the whole of one end of the hall was open. The opening was as high as the hall was high, and as wide as it was wide. And the hall itself was enormous. Any of the halls of Asgard, even Valhalla, would have fitted inside it. This place will keep the rain off of our backs, said Loki, and here at least the damp will not seep into our bones. The gods and Thialfi and Roskva were so worn with traveling all day that hungry though they were, they very quickly settled and fell asleep. 
At midnight, however, all four of them were shocked out of their sleep. They heard a terrible growling. The noise grew louder. It grew so loud that the hall began to rock and sway. Thor and Loki and Thialfi and Roskva started to their feet and the ground shuddered under them. An earthquake! shouted Thor. Thialfi and Roskva stood wide-eyed, then they hugged one another. Let's get out, said Loki. I don't want to be flattened and stiff as a plank. At this moment, however, the ground stopped shaking. The earth thunder ceased as abruptly as it had begun, and the night was as silent as it had been before. Outside is no safer than inside, said Thor. Now there must be some place better than this, replied Loki. Let us at least get the hang of this place. The known is always better than the unknown. So the four of them groped their way towards the far end of the hall, but the darkness seemed to grow thicker and more stifling with every step they took. They did, however, make one find, a smaller side room that went off to the right, almost halfway down the vast main hall. This is better, said Thor. At least we can make a fight of it here if a man or monster shows its face. Earthquakes, however, are something else. So Loki and Thialfi and his sister Roskva felt their way into the pitch-dark recess of the side room, and Thor sat down in the doorway. He gripped the handle of his hammer and vowed to guard them against all comers. Even now, the travelers did not enjoy unbroken sleep. They were woken several times by a muffled roaring and lay awake for most of the night in a state of dread. As soon as it began to get light, Thor cautiously made his way out of the hall. At once he saw a man lying full length in the glade, and he was by no means a dwarf. He was asleep, and in his sleep he suddenly snorted. Then he began to snore, and Thor understood the nature of the noise that he and his companions had heard during the night. He looked at the giant grimly, and buckled on the belt given to him by the giantess Grid. He felt his strength grow and surge like a spring within him. At this moment the giant woke, and seeing Thor standing almost over him sprang to his feet. He was as tall as the pine trees around them, and Thor was so taken aback at his height that he did not hurl Mjolnir at him, but asked astonished, Who on earth are you? Skrymir, boomed the giant. Big bloke. No one is going to quarrel with that, muttered Thor. I don't have to ask who you are, said Skrymir eyeing Loki, Thialfi, and Roskva, who had now crept out of their sleeping quarters. I know you're Thor. Have you moved my glove? Skrymir bent down and picked it up, the glove that Thor and the others had seen as a vast hall. Thor now saw that what they had taken for the main hall was the cavity for Skrymir's hand and four fingers, and that the side room was the opening for his thumb. What would you say to my company today? said Skrymir. We'd welcome it, Thor said. We're on our way to Utgard. Eat and drink with me first, said Skrymir. Thor and his companions were far from unhappy about that, for their own knapsack was now almost empty. When they had eaten as much as they'd wanted, Skrymir said, Let's pool our provisions. Very well, said Thor. So Skrymir simply dropped their knapsack into his own larger bag, tied it up and slung it over his back. Then he set off through the forest, taking huge strides, so that Thor, Loki, and Roskva were soon left behind. Even Thialfi, as fleet as foot as any man in Midgard, was hard put to keep up with him. The travelers, however, could always tell which way to go by stopping to listen to the sound of Skrymir crashing through the forest ahead of them. In the evening, they caught up with the giant at the very edge of the forest. He was sitting under a large oak. There are no buildings here, he said, but these oaks will give us shelter for the night. I'm tired after such a trek, and all I want to do is sleep. 
Thor looked pained and Loki ravenous. Thialfi and Roskva thought of their father's farm and their mother's cauldron. A lack of meat seems little hardship now, said Roskva forlornly. But you can take my bag, said Skrymir. Prepare yourselves some supper. Then he lay down and rolled over, and within a minute he was asleep. The oak tree shook at his snoring, and the birds perched in his branches took themselves off for a better place. Thor grasped the bag of provisions. You can make the fire, he told the others, and I'll undo it. And that is just what he could not do. The straps keeping the travelers from their supper were as adamant as the rope lading that bound the wolf Fenrir, and Thor was unable to work a single one loose. His companions each took a turn, and the prospect of having any supper that evening slowly receded. Thor grew more and more frustrated. His beard bristled at the thought that Skrymir had not meant them to be able to open the bag. Then he lost his patience altogether. He gripped Mjolnir with both hands and took a couple of steps forward, so that he stood right over Skrymir, and then he brought the hammer down on the giant's forehead. Skrymir sat up. What was that? he said. Did a leaf fall on my head? He looked around him. And you, have you had your supper and are you ready to sleep? As a matter of fact, said Thor hurriedly, we were just about to turn in. The travelers slowly made their way to the shelter of a second massive oak tree standing nearby. They lay down there. But now that Thor's hammer had failed him for the first time since it was forged by Brock and Atri, they were all too anxious as well and too hungry to be able to sleep. At midnight, Skrymir was snoring again. The trees nearby shuddered and the ground shook under their bodies. Thor decided he had heard enough. Without a word, he got up and quietly made his way over to Skrymir. Then he raised Mjolnir quickly and fiercely and slammed it down on the middle of the giant's crown. He could feel that the head of the hammer had sunk well into Skrymir's brains. Skrymir sat up. No, what was that? He said. Did an acorn fall upon my head? He looked around him. And you, Thor, what are you doing over here? Like you, Thor said hastily. I've just woken up. But it's the middle of the night, and we should both go back to sleep. As he talked, Thor backed away and lay down again beside his companions under the second oak. His brows beetled, and he vowed to himself that when he got the chance to hit Skrymir again, the giant would see stars and plunge to the depth of Niflheim. He lay very still, waiting for Skrymir to go back to sleep. Shortly before daybreak, Thor was sure his victim was fast asleep. His ears could scarcely withstand the racket of his snoring. Once more, he got up and quietly made his way over to Skrymir. He raised Mjolnir and with all his immense might crashed it into the giant's upturned temple. He buried the whole hammer inside Skrymir's brains. It sank right up to the handle. Skrymir sat up and rubbed his cheek. Are there any birds up there in that tree? He said. Just as I was waking, I thought some droppings fell onto me. He looked around him. And you, Thor, are you well and truly awake? Thor was dumbstruck. It's time your companions stirred themselves. Tell them to get up and dress. It's not far from here to the stronghold of Utgard. Skrymir narrowed his eyes. I've heard you whispering to each other that I'm no dwarf. But wait until you get to Utgard. You'll see men there much bigger than I am. Whether he was aware of it or not, Thor was slowly shaking his head. Loki and Thialfi and Roskva stirred under their oak and listened to the giant. And let me give you a piece of advice, said Skrymir. Keep your pride for your own kind. Keep your mouths shut. Utgard Loki's men won't stand for bragging from small fry like you. Thor seethed at such an insult, but there was nothing whatsoever he could do about it. He stood and listened. 
Your other course of action, said Scrymere, would be to head straight home, and in my view that would be the right one. But if you insist on going on, walk east from here, Scrymere pointed out the way. As for me, I have to head north for those distant mountains. Then Scrymere picked up his bag of provisions, threw it over his back, and without a friendly word, without even a nod, he stumped away along the hem of the wood. Thor and his companions watched him go. I don't imagine we'll miss him much, said Loki, or long to see him again. The four travelers left the forest behind. All morning they walked until it was no more than a blur on the horizon. They pressed on over rising ground, and when the sun stood almost directly overhead, crossed a saddleback with three strange square-shaped valleys, and climbed down into a plain where stood a massive stronghold. The walls were so high that they had to throw back their heads to see the top of the buildings beyond. Thor and his companions were happy to be near their journey's end. They hurried along a well-worn track that went up to the great gates fashioned of wrought iron. They were locked, and no one attended them. They peered through the bars and marveled at the size of the halls inside the stronghold. The bigger they are, the heavier they fall, said Thor, fingering Nolnir. But then he remembered Skrymir again and felt uneasy. He rattled the gates, but he was unable to prize them open or to make himself heard. Whenever was brawn as good as brain, said Loki. I said you'd need sharp wits. Then he slipped between the bars and stood grinning inside Utgard. Slender Roskva and long-limbed Thialfi followed him at once, but Thor had a less easy time of it. In the end, however, he worked his way through. Two of the iron bars gave way for him. The travelers made for the large hall before them. The door was open, and so they walked in. A large number of giants, male and female, old and young, most of them as vast as Skrymir had described, were lounging on the benches lodged against the walls. They stared at Thor and Loki and Thialfi and began to sneer. They ogled Roskva and began to leer. One giant sat alone in a chair at the end of the hall, and judging him to be Utgard Loki himself, Thor and his companions made their way up to him and courteously greeted him. The giant king took not the least notice. That is to say, he did not look at them, but through them. He made no move and said nothing. Thor frowned and turned to Loki. Loki yawned. Greetings, repeated Thor much more forcefully, even though the king of giants was not deaf. We have news, boomed Utgard Loki, rudely interrupting Thor. Travels slowly from other worlds. An event or visit overtakes word of it. He smiled a knowing smile. Or am I mistaken in taking this whippersnapper to be Thor the charioteer? Thor bridled, but surrounded by giants, he was unable to call the two. For the first time, Utgard Loki looked at Thor. Well, maybe you're stronger than you look, he said. At what skill would you say you excel? And what can your companions do? We never allow anyone to stay with us unless he is a master of some craft or pastime. Loki was standing a couple of steps behind the others. Seeing that Thor had no answer on the tip of his tongue, he took up the challenge. I've a certain gift, he called out, and I'm ready to prove it. There's no one in this hall who can eat faster than I. The giant king considered Loki. If you're right, that will certainly be an accomplishment, he said. We'll put it to the test. Utgard Loki looked along the benches and pointed at a giant sitting in the far end of the hall. Logi, he shouted. 
Come up here and pitch yourself against Loki. Then the giant king's servants carried a trencher into the hall and set it down before the throne. They heaped it with hunks of chopped meat, and it reminded Thor that rather too long had elapsed since they had last eaten. A chair was provided for Loki at one end of the trencher, and for Logi at the other, and at the word from the giant king they both began to eat. They gobbled and consumed and devoured. Each of them ate as fast as he could, edging his chair forward as he ate, and they met in the middle of the trencher. Loki had eaten every scrap of the meat and left nothing but the bones. But Logi had not only eaten the meat, he had eaten the bones in the trencher as well. I would say, proclaimed the giant king, that Loki is the loser. An unpleasant shout from his followers indicated that that was what they thought too. Loki narrowed his eyes and viewed Utgard Loki with deep mistrust. So what can this young lad do? asked the giant king. I'll run a race against anyone you care to name said the Alfie. That's a singular skill, said Utgard Loki, and you must be a fine athlete if you think you can outstrip anyone here. We must put it at once to the test. Then the giant king and his followers and the four travelers made their way out of the hall to an open place where there was a level of grass that made a good running track. Hoogie, called the giant king. One of the younger giants ambled up to Utgard Loki. You're just the one to run against the Alfie. Go to your marks for the first race. Then on a sign from the giant king, Thialfi and Hoogie sprinted over the grass as fast as their legs could carry them. They scarcely seemed to touch the ground, and Hoogie reached the end of the track so far ahead of Thialfi that he was able to turn around and welcome him. Well, Thialfi, said the giant king, if you mean to win this contest, you'll need to exert yourself. I must say, though, I've never seen a mad for Midgard with such a turn of speed. Then Thialfi and Hoogie made their way back to the start again, and on a sign from the great king they sprinted over the grass as fast as their legs could carry them. They scarcely seemed to touch the ground, and by the time Hoogie reached the end of the track, Thialfi was trailing him by the distance of a well-drawn crossbow shot. Thialfi is certainly fast on his feet, said the giant king, but I think that victory has slipped from his grasp now. The third race will settle things. Thialfi and Hoogie made their way back to the start once more, and on a sign from the Giant King, they sprinted over the grass as fast as their legs could carry them. They scarcely seemed to touch the ground, and this time Hoogie ran twice as fast as Thialfi. By the time they got to the end of the track, Thialfi had still not reached the halfway mark. After this, there was no argument. It was agreed that enough ground had been covered to settle the matter. Now, Thor, said the Giant King, you're well known for your boasting. I've heard you brag endlessly about this and that and the other. Which of all your skills would you deign to show us? Thor ignored Utgard Loki's insults as he had to. I'll drink, he said, and I very much doubt whether anyone here can sink as much as I can. Very well, said the Giant King. Then the four travelers and all of the giants made their way back into the cavernous hall, and Utgard Loki asked his cupbearer to fetch the scones horn used by all his followers. The cupbearer put the brimming horn into Thor's hands. We think a man who can drain this on one draught is a good drinker, said the giant king. Some men take two draughts to empty it, but no one here is so feeble that he cannot finish it off in three. Thor had a look at the horn. He thought he had seen larger, although it seemed a bit on the long side. He was, moreover, very thirsty for the giant king had not offered him or his companions so much as a drop since they had first reached the hall. He raised the horn to his mouth. 
closed his eyes and began to swill the liquid down in enormous gulps. And as he drank, he felt sure he would drain the whole horn in one draught. But Thor ran out of breath before the horn ran out of liquid. He raised his head, looked into the horn, and was startled to see that the level of the drink was a little lower than before. You drank plenty, boomed Utgard Loki, but nothing like enough. The Thunder God scowled at the Skans horn. If I'd been told that Thor could only drink that much, I'd never have believed it, said the Giant King. Still, I know you'll empty it with your second draught. Thor said nothing. He simply raised the horn to his mouth again and opened his throat and poured a tide of drink down it until he was gasping for breath, but he was still unable to tilt the horn back and drain it. Thor raised his head and peered into the horn. He thought that although there was now some space between the rim and the drink, and it was possible to carry the horn without spilling liquid, he had made rather less headway with his second draught than with his first. Utgard Loki shook his head and sighed. His breath was like an unsavory warm wind whirling about Thor and Loki and Thialfi and Roskva. What's going on, Thor? he asked. Haven't you left rather too much for comfort? It seems to me that if you're going to empty this horn, your third attempt will have to be your best. Thor glared at the sconce horn and his red beard bristled. I know you're much admired in Asgard, but you won't be admired by any of us here, you know. Not unless you do better in some other contest than you've done in this one. Thor was fretful at his own shortcoming and wrathful at the giant king's words. He raised the horn to his mouth and opened his throat and drank and drank. He drank as much as he could stomach and still he could not drain it. At last he raised his head and peered into the horn and he saw that it was at least somewhat lower than before. Then Thor thrust the horn into the cupbearer's hands and angrily shook his head at the laughing invitations from all around him to drink more and drink again. It's clear enough, remarked the giant king, that your prowess is not all that we supposed. Still, do you want to try your hand at some other kind of contest? Your drinking really doesn't do you much justice, does it? I can prove myself in countless ways, Thor said gruffly. But let me say I'd be surprised if anyone in Asgard called such huge draughts trifling. Utgard Loki smiled down at Thor and said nothing. So what have you got in store for me now? said Thor. The giant king shook his head and sighed. Young giants here perform the feat of lifting my cat from the ground. I can't pretend it's very highly rated. Indeed, I'd never have dreamed of suggesting it to great Thor unless I'd seen with my own eyes that you're not half as strong as I thought you were. As if it had been waiting on its master's words, a gray cat under the giant king's throne uncoiled and it sprang to the floor. It was no kitten. Thor stumped forward, put one massive arm under the cat and began to lift. As he lifted, the cat simply arched its back. Now Thor used both hands and with a mighty effort he heaved at the cat but the animal only arched its back still more so that its body formed a steep rainbow over the god's head. Its four feet remained on the ground. All the laughing giants laughed at the way in which the cat, with its effortless movement, frustrated Thor's muscular attempts on it. Now Thor stood under the cat, between its legs, and rocked forward onto his toes in an attempt to lift it. And when he reached his hands and the cat's belly as high above his head as he could, the cat was finally obliged to raise one paw. That was as much as Thor could manage. Much as I thought, said Utgard Loki. It's rather a big cat, and Thor is a midget compared to the mighty men at this court. Call me what you like, shouted Thor, but just let someone come here and wrestle with me here. Now I'm really angry. The Thunder God glared at the giants around him. 
He was beside himself with his own failures and the giant king's string of taunts and abuses. Utgard Loki looked along the benches and rubbed his bush of a beard. I can't say I see anyone here to wrestle with you, he said. They'd all feel it was beneath them. Now Thor was wondering how he could bring Mjolnir into action. He fingered the hammer and grated his teeth. Wait, said the giant king. I've an idea. Go and find Ellie, my old foster mother. Thor can wrestle with her if he wants to, the giants chuckled. She's thrown men who have struck me as stronger than Thor, said Utgard Loki. After a little while, a horrible old crone hobbled into the hall and made her way towards the throne. The giant king got up to greet his foster mother and asked her if she would consider coming to grips with Thor. Ellie agreed and threw away her stick. Then Thor fairly hurled himself at the old woman, but at the moment he laid hands on her, he knew she was far stronger than she seemed. Thor heaved and strained and grunted, and the old woman stood firm and unshaken. The greater his pressure, the more easily she withstood it. Now Ellie won the upper hand and tried to hold her too. Suddenly she took Thor by surprise. She caught him in a lock and threw him off balance. Thor bared his teeth and clung to Ellie desperately. He tried to take her down with him, but after a struggle, he was forced onto one knee. That's enough, cried Utgard Loki. Quite enough. You've shown us your strength as a wrestler, and there's certainly no need for you to take on any of my followers. After the eating and the running, the drinking and the wrestling, it was late in the evening. Utgard Loki himself found places for Thor and Loki, Thialfi and Roskva on the crowded benches. And there they were brought as much food and drink as they wished, and were made most welcome. Then the floor was padded with bedding and pillows. In that high hall, the four weary travelers in the concourse of giants lay down and fell asleep. Thor and his companions were the first to wake. They dressed and made ready to leave Utgard. But then the giant king stirred. He picked his way over the trunk-like bodies of his sleeping followers and set up a table beside the travelers. Then he woke his servants. And in a little while, Thor and Loki and Thialfi and Roskva were regaled with food and drink. Now there was no limit to the giant king's courtesy. He made his way past the sleeping giants and out of the hall with his guests and showed them through the massive gates of Utgard. For a time, they walked across the green plain in the early morning sunlight. The giant king was as genial as can be imagined. But after the previous night's experiences, Thor was still chastened and Loki was unusually silent. The Alfie and Roskva, on the other hand, were glad to be away and alive. Their spirits rose and they chattered gaily. Well, said Utgard Loki, this is where I must leave you. Thor looked up at him. How do you feel things have turned out? asked the giant king. Were they as you thought? And tell me, have you ever met anyone more powerful than I? Thor shook his head. I can't deny, he said, that I've come off second best. You've put me to shame. What's more, I know you'll bandy it about like I'm nothing to reckon with, and I don't like that. Listen, Thor, said the Giant King. I'm going to tell you the truth now that we're outside the walls of Utgard. For as long as I live and people listen to me, you'll never see the inside of those walls again. Thor looked baffled. If I'd known how strong you are, you wouldn't have gotten in at all, continued Utgard Loki. I can promise you that. Do you know you were very nearly the end of us all? Not a word escaped Loki, but he pressed his scarred lips together and began to smile secretly. I've used spells to trick you, said the Giant King. It was I who met you in the forest. You remember that bag packed with provisions? 
I fastened it with wires, and so it's no wonder you could find no way to undoing it. Then you hit me three times with your hammer. The first blow was the lightest, but if it had touched me, it would have been enough to kill me. That saddlebacked hill not so far from my stronghold, and those three square-shaped valleys, one of them so deep, those were the dents you made with your hammer. I set that saddleback between you and me, and you never knew it. Thor listened to Utgard Loki's explanation. He listened with mixed feelings, wonder, relief, frustration, and slowly rising anger. I use spells too, said the giant king, when you and your companions vied with my followers. Loki was ravenous and ate very, very fast, but the man called Logi was wildfire itself. He burned up the trencher as well as the meat, and when Thialfi ran against Hugi, he was running against my own thought. He couldn't be expected to keep up with the speed of thought. Loki grinned maliciously at Thor. Thor saw nothing to smile about. And you, said the giant king, when you drank from that horn, you thought you were found wanting. But I tell you, I could scarcely believe my eyes. You didn't realize the other end of the horn was in the sea. When you get back to the ocean, you'll see how much it is ebbed. The giant king mused for a while. And that cat, he boomed. That was a wonder. Everyone was appalled when you made him lift one paw off the ground. For of course, that was not what it seemed to be. It was Jormungand, the Midgard serpent that encircles the earth and bites on his own tail. You reached up so high that it all but grazed its back in the sky. And it was a marvel, Thor, that you withstood Ellie for so long, and even then only fell to one knee. Ellie is old age. Even if his life is not cut short by the sword or illness or by some accident, no one can withstand old age in the end. And now, said the giant king, this is where our ways part. It will be better for us both if you do not visit me again. I have used magic, and I'll use it again to protect Utgard, so that you'll never be able to harm me in any way. Thor was seething. When he heard the giant king's words, he gripped his hammer Mjolnir and raised it over his head. He summoned all of his strength. In vain. All in vain. Utgard Loki had vanished. Then Thor swung on his heel with the aim of smashing the walls of Utgard, the halls, the lounging giants. But there was no stronghold there, nothing but a sweeping, shimmering plain. No Utgard, no giant king, except for the dents in the saddle-backed hill. It was as if it had never been. Thor turned to join his companions. The four of them slowly made their way back to the sea and crossed it into Midgard. Thor retrieved his chariot and goats from the farmer and his wife. Then with Loki, Thialfi, and Roskva, he returned at long last to Thrudvang, galloping over the green and gold fields of Asgard. The Way of Hymir The gods had plenty of food, but they had run out of mead and ale. They began to feast, but the more they ate, the less they felt like eating, with no drink to wash the food down. They sacrificed a small animal and dipped twigs into its blood. They shook them, and the runes scored on them began to shine. They shook them again and divined that Aegir, god of the sea, could help them. So a group of gods and goddesses left Asgard and made for the island of Hlesi, and there they found Aegir and his wife Ran in their hall beneath the waves, lit only by gleaming gold. 
The sea god was sitting at peace with the world and as blithe as a child. Thor, son of Odin, soon put an end to that. He looked Aegir in the eye and almost blinded him. Brew some ale for the gods, he commanded. Brew it at once, and brew plenty of it. Thor's abrupt tone angered Aegir. He lowered his eyes and considered how to repay him. I've no cauldron that can hold enough, he said. Bring me a cauldron, Thor, and I'll brew ale for all the gods. The gods and goddesses looked at each other. None of them owned a cauldron that was large enough, nor did they have the least idea where they could get one. Then one-handed Tyr, always truthful, turned to the Thunder God and volunteered. My father, the giant Hymir, lives away to the east, beyond the stormy waves of the Elevigar. I know he has a cauldron, a huge cauldron, five miles deep. Do you think we could lay hands on it? asked Thor, this water whirler. We can, said Tyr, but only if we're cunning. Do not reveal who you are. Call yourself Vue. So Thor and Tyr set off at high speed, and that same day they reached Egil's farm, where Thor left his high-horned goats, Tangnost, Tooth Grinder, and Tangrizni, Gat Tooth. Then the gods headed east and crossed the Elevagar. They traveled almost to the end of the earth and the sky above, and at last they came to Hymir's Hall. It stood on a mountain quite close to the sea. The first person they came across was Tyr's grandmother, for whom Tyr had very little love. She was a monster with nine hundred heads. Thor shook his head and marveled greatly. But then Tyr's mother walked into the hall. She had the most beautiful pale skin and wore a necklace and armbands of gold. She welcomed her son and Thor and brought them goblets of ale. Giant blood runs in my veins, she said. I know what's what. Brave as you both may be, I think you'd better hide beneath one of the cauldrons. My husband has a rather brusque way of greeting his guests. As might be expected, Thor had little liking for the suggestion, but Tyr sided with his mother and asked Thor what he stood to lose by being a little cautious. And so they waited in safety until ugly Hymir came in late from hunting. As he walked into the hall, the icicles hanging from his frozen beard clinked and chinked. Hymir's wife got up to meet them. Greetings, Hymir. You've got good reason to be happy. Your son is here in the hall. How long we've waited while he journeyed far and wide. And he has brought a companion with him, the foe of Hrod and a friend to all men. He is called Vyr. Hymir's gentle wife tried to soften the heart of her husband. Look at them sitting at the end of the hall under the gable, hiding beneath one of those supports and hoping it will guard them. The giant glared balefully at the support, and at once the gable's crossbeam cracked. Then eight well-tempered cauldrons toppled and fell from the shelf there. They crashed onto the hall floor and smashed into smithereens. Only one did not break, the one under which Thor and Tyr were sheltering. The two gods crawled out from under the rim, and Hymir faced them. The old giant's eyes glittered, and he pierced them with his gaze. But when he saw Hrod's sworn enemy step into the open, he felt uneasy himself, and knew no good could come of his visit. All the same, he made due provision for his guests. 
He gave orders to his servants that no less than three oxen should be slaughtered and flayed and boiled. At once his servants lopped off the heads of the cattle and carried them to the cauldron hanging over the fire. The meal was prepared. And before he went to sleep that night, Sif's husband Thor astonished Hymir by devouring two whole oxen. Hymir, the friend of Hungnir, said, If the three of us want to eat again together, we'll have to go out hunting. Let us go out rowing, then, and see what we can get, said Vuer to the savage giant. All I need from you is bait. Help yourself from the pasture where my herd is grazing, said Hymir. I've no doubt, giant killer, that you'll find a turd or two there easily enough. The god at once made his way out of Hymir's hall into the steep pasture surrounding it. There he found a splendid black ox, Hemen Hiryot, the heaven bellower. The giant killer grabbed its high horns and wrenched them apart until they snapped, and then he broke the beast's neck. What you ate was bad enough, said Hymir grimly, but it seems to me you've even more of a nuisance left at large than sitting by my fire. Hymir and Thor left the others behind in the hall and went down to the sea. They launched the giant's boat, and to begin with, Thor manned the oars. Then Hymir took over. The giant kinsman of apes rowed well out from the land and then shipped his oars so that he could start to fish. Further, urged Thor. Row further. I don't want to row one stroke further, Hymir replied. The fierce giant began to prepare his tackle. He fixed hooks to his line and cast it over the gunwale. Almost at once the line tightened and Hymir hauled up two whales, hissing and sighing and churning the water into a maelstrom. Odin's son Vuer was sitting in the stern and he prepared his gear with great care. The slaughterer of monsters and guardian of men baited his hook with the head of the ox heaven bellowed. Then he cast his line into the dark water. Under the waves, the enemy of the gods, the serpent surrounding Midgard, let go of its own tail and gaped and took the bait. Thor did not hesitate. Fist over fist, he quickly pulled in his line. Jormungand, the Midgard serpent, lashed the sea into a frenzy. The water fizzed and frothed, but the thunder god did not loosen his grip. He dragged the monster up under the keel and then began to haul it over the gunwale. Then Thor raised his hammer and it sang a grisly song on the hairy head of that terrible serpent, brother of Fenrir. The serpent roared and the mountains of Jotunheim heard and replied. Midgard shuddered. Jormungand tugged at the great barb piercing the roof of its mouth. It twisted and wrenched and at last with a tearing of flesh it set itself free. The serpent sank once more to the bottom of the sea. Shaken and appalled by what he had seen, Hymir had no heart for words, he made heavy weather of the homeward journey. First he pulled strongly on one oar, then on the other, in the hopes of picking up a following wind to carry them closer to land and into calmer water. When the keel finally scraped the shingle and the boat lodged, Hymir said, There's enough work here for two pairs of hands. Would you drag the boat up beyond the high tide mark and secure it, or would you rather pull the whales back to my hull? Without even bothering to reply, the charioteer stood up and stepped out of the boat. He grabbed the prow with his massive fists and began to raise it. The bilge water slopped and swilled back to the stern. 
Then the god began to drag the boat with the two whales, the oars, and the great baler still inside it. He hauled it across sand, on through a birchwood, and over a hill until he reached Tymir's Hall. Tyr and his mother welcomed them there, and marveled at Thor's feet in bringing the boat and the cargo up from the sea. Even now, stubborn Hymir would not own that he had come in second best, and he resolved on another test of strength. You're a fair Orman, certainly, he said, but so are many others. I'd only call a man strong if you were able to smash this glass goblet. The charioteer took the goblet from Hymir and promptly hurled it against one of the stone pillars supporting the gable. The hall was filled with bits and pieces of flying masonry. Then one of the giant's servants hurried down to the end of the hall and picked up the goblet from the heap of rubble. It was unbroken, and he brought it back to Hymir. Hymir's wife bent her head towards Thor. Throw it at his head, she whispered. He eats so much that it's almost solid. However hard that glass is, his head must be harder. Then the charioteer stood up again. He turned to face Hymir and with all his divine strength threw the goblet straight at the giant's forehead. Hymir's skull remained intact, but the wine goblet fractured and fell to the floor in two pieces. Hymir bent down and picked them up, and put them on his knees and stared at them. With the loss of this goblet, he said sadly, I lose far more than a goblet. The giant shook his head as if suddenly all his strength had ebbed from him. What's mine is yours now. My last cauldron is yours, he said. I can't stop you from taking it. Even so, it will be a mighty task to cart it out of this hall. I'll never be able to say again, Brew for me, cauldron, cauldron, brew me ale. Tyr did not need to be invited twice. He jumped down and took a hold of the cauldron and began to pull, but he was unable to move it. Hymir looked at him and smiled sourly. Then Tyr tried again. He filled his lungs and pulled, but the cauldron only rocked and settled back into its original position. Now Thor seized the rim. The cauldron was so massive and Thor exerted so much pressure that his feet splintered the wooden planks and broke right through the hall floor. Then the god hoisted the vast cauldron onto his shoulder and strode out of the hall. Its handles yapped at his ankles. Thor and Tyr had not gone far before Thor turned round, wanting to have a last look at Hymir's hall. It was just as well that he did. The first thing he saw was Hymir and a whole throng of many-headed giants who had left their lairs in the east and were coming after them. Thor eased the massive cauldron from his shoulder and set it down on the ground. Then his hands were free to take a grip on Mjolnir. He stood his ground and swung his hammer. Not a single monster... Not one prowler of the wilderness was able to withstand it. Now Thor shouldered the cauldron again, and the two gods hurried on. It was not long before they reached Egil's farm, where Thor had left his chariot and goats, though one, thanks to Loki, was lame and limped in its harness. Thor returned home while the gods were meeting in solemn assembly at the well of Urd, under the branches of Yggdrasil. All the gods gazed at the cauldron, amazed, they acclaimed Thor and his companion Tyr. So Aegir was outwitted. Thor gave him the cauldron and took away his pride. And that winter, and every winter, the gods drank tides of warming ale brewed for them in the sea gods' gleaming hall. 
So I hope you liked The Lay of Hymir. It's one of those stories that I'd heard rather differently. And, and, and what's interesting about the story is that this was evidently an extremely popular story back in the ancient days because we have no fewer than four different versions of the story. Now, thankfully, Kevin Crossley Holland has included two different versions of the story in this book. And so you're going to get a little bit of bonus here because I'm going to actually read you the other version. Now, what's interesting is most of the adaptations that Kevin Crossley Holland did in the book were actually adapted from the work of Snorri Sturluson. This is one of the myths that actually came from an older source. And the other version that we're going to read now is actually Snorri's version. And as you'll see, it's very different and a lot shorter than this uh, initial version. And it omits certain characters entirely. So... Once again, I, I hope you'll enjoy it. How, how we handle this when we get to the, uh, the the myth compilation show that this is supposed to be in, I have no clue how we're going to handle having both of these in there. But we'll manage somehow anyway. Yeah, I, I think that this is uh, you know, one of those myths that a lot of us have heard. And this version, Snorri's version that we're about to read, may seem a little bit more familiar to you. So here's another version of The Way of Hymir. One doesn't have to be an authority to know that Thor made amends for the expedition to the court of Utgard-Loki. He did not stay long at home before he got ready for a journey in such haste that he took with him neither chariot nor goats nor companions. He went out of Asgard disguised as a youth and came in the evening to a giant called Hymir. Thor stayed there that night, and at daybreak Hymir got up and dressed and prepared to go sea-fishing in a rowing boat. Thor sprang up and was soon ready in asking Hymir to let him go rowing with him. Hymir said that he could not be such help, as he was such a scrap of a young fellow. You'll catch cold if I sit as long and as far out to sea as I usually do. Thor, however, said he was able to row a long way out from the shore all the same, and it wasn't certain that he would be the first to demand to be rowed back. And he got so angry with the giant that he was ready incontinently to set the hammer ringing on his head. He controlled himself, however, as he was intending to try his strength in another place. He asked Hymir what they were to take as bait, but Hymir told him to get his own. Then Thor turned away where he saw a herd of oxen belonging to Hymir, and taking the biggest ox, which was called Sky Bellower, he struck off its head and went down to the sea with it. By then, Hymir had launched his boat. Thor went on board and, sitting down in the stern, took two oars and rowed. Hymir thought they made rapid progress from his rowing. Hymir rowed bow, and the rowing went on apace until Hymir said that he had come to those banks where he was accustomed to sit and catch flat fish. But Thor said he wanted to row much further out, and they had another bout of fast rowing. Then Hymir said they had come out so far that it would be dangerous to sit here on account of the Midgard serpent. Thor, however, declared his intention of rowing for a bit yet, and did so, and Hymir was not at all pleased with that. When Thor shipped his oars, he made ready a very strong line, and the hook was just as big and firm. Baiting the hook with the ox head, he flung it overboard. It sank to the bottom, and it's a fact that on this occasion... Thor made as great a fool of the Midgard serpent as Utgard-Loki had of Thor when he was trying to lift the serpent up with his arm. 
The Midgard serpent snapped at the ox head, but the hook stuck fast in the roof of its mouth. And when it realized that, it jerked away so hard that both of Thor's fists knocked against the gunwale. Then Thor grew angry, and exerting all his divine strength, dug in his heels so hard that both legs went through the boat, and he was digging his heels in on the sea bottom. He drew the serpent up on board, and it must be said that no one has seen anything to be afraid of who didn't see how Thor fixed the serpent with his eye, and how the serpent glared back, belching poison. We are told that the giant Hymir lost color then, and turned pale with fear when he saw the serpent and the sea tumbling in and out of the vessel too. The very moment Thor gripped his hammer and raised it aloft, the giant fumbled for his bait knife and cut Thor's line off at the gunwale, and the serpent sank back into the sea. Thor flung his hammer after it, and people say that this struck its head off in the waves. But I think the truth is that the Midgard serpent is still alive lying in the ocean. Thor clenched his fist and gave Hymir a box on the ear so that he fell overboard head first, but he himself waded ashore. <laughs>